Our great God and Heavenly Father, you are a great God. And you are our Heavenly Father. Because you are a great God, you are able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we can ever ask or think. And because you are our Heavenly Father, you are concerned about everything that concerns us. You know our frame, you know what we can handle, and you have supplied everything that we need for life and godliness. So Lord, help us look to you today. We pray especially for these families that have to make this decision. We pray, Lord, that you would give them your wisdom, your guidance, your instruction, and that, Lord, you would, would help them to trust you <coughs> through this crazy, crazy time and the sacrifices they're going to have to make if they decide not to get the shot. So, Lord, we just pray your blessing on them. We pray for your wisdom, and we know that you will care. So now, Lord, we, we commit this time of study together to, with you today. <coughs> and, <coughs> and pray your blessing on it in Jesus' name. Amen. Same thing's happening that happened last time. My throat dries right out in this room. I don't know what the story is. But I brought water. Psalm 34 is what I'd like to teach on today. My favorite psalm. Got my favorite verse in it. Verse number six. This poor man cried. And the Lord heard him. And saved him from all his troubles. <laughs> I've lived by that verse for years and it's been so helpful. So, the psalm has its own title though. And uh, if, if you have a Bible like mine, it, they call it, my ESV translators call it, taste and see that the Lord is good from verse eight. But uh, the title that goes with verse one that we believe God is inspired, because it's verse one. <laughs> and you heard what Ben said today about uh, the human authors being led by the Holy Spirit. So what we're going to do this morning is, is uh, I'm going to give you the historical background of the psalm. And then we're going to go through the psalm together and give you a running commentary. And then we're going to give you what I think is maybe David's intention in writing the psalm, what he wanted his readers to to take home. So that, that's the goal for today. And God being our helper, that's what we'll accomplish. And uh, brought my handy dandy glass here. If you want to see my text, that's what I read. So you can read it from back there where you are, right? But I don't have that luxury. <laughs> yeah, I'm about four steps away from being blind, but they say I'll never go dark. So that's as long as I got a Kindle and a computer, I can read. All right, let's get started. Psalm 34, and uh, verse 1 says, Of David, which he, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. So that, whoever put together the Psalms, David didn't entitle this Psalm, but somehow or other they understood that David wrote this Psalm in commemoration of what we just read. And what we just read takes place in, in 1 Samuel chapter 21. You can look there. We won't go there. I'll just tell you the story. 
Uh, in 1 Samuel 21, David, you know, David was continually running away from Saul because the most loyal servant that Saul had was David, and David hated Saul. I mean, David hated Saul, hated David. And so David, even though he was a man after God's own heart, was still a man. And at this particular junction in his life, he didn't seek the Lord. He saw his circumstances. He saw the continual threats of Saul. And he got this brainy idea. If I go over to the Philistines, Saul will leave me alone. So he says, I think I'll make an appeal to Abimelech, the king of Gath, one of the five major cities of, the, of Philistia, the Philistines. And I'll see if maybe he'll grant me asylum. And David said, that sounds like a good idea to me. Then I'll be safe. So he gets over there in the, in the Philistia at, in, at Gath, and, and uh, he approaches Abimelech. That's his title. His name is Gath. I mean, his name is Achish. And he approaches uh, uh, King Abimelech, and, and seeks asylum. And as soon as Abimelech's servants recognize who he is, they say, hang on. Don't you recognize who this is? This is David, the king of Israel, even though he's not king yet. This is the guy that they sing their praises to, that Saul killed his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And guess who those ten thousands were? <laughs> Philistines. And here he is. Let's not give him asylum. And then the text says that, that David became afraid of Achish because now he knew that all of a sudden what, where he sought asylum, they were ready to kill him. And so he said, now how in the world am I going to get myself out of this mess? So he comes up with another brainy idea. Well, I'll just act like a madman because no king tolerates madmen. You know, they, they pity madmen. They, they, they make fun of madmen. So he began to scribble on the gates of the wall. I don't know what he wrote, but, you know, it, it, it was definitely weird graffiti. Uh, and then he started to let his spit run down over his, over his, his beard. And, and, and uh, Abimelech's guy is saying, this is the guy who killed Goliath. And Abimelech says, well, I don't care what he did, but look at him, he's an idiot. The guy's crazy. I got enough crazy people in my kingdom. I don't need another one, give it to this guy. And so David left. And then uh, chapter 22 of 1 Samuel tells us that he went to the cave of Adullam and hid out in that cave and there his family all gathered around him. And shortly he had 400 people under his care and it's believed that while he was at the cave of Adullam, he sat down to write Psalm 34. Now, it's very carefully created because we, don't, we can't recognize it in the English, but in the Hebrew, Psalm 34 is an acrostic psalm, which means that every stanza in David's poem starts with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So there's 22 stanzas. And, and uh, but I think there may be 23 letters. He left out one letter, so just to make it even, I guess, is what the commentators say. Uh, but, but each, 
each, each, each stanza begins with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet, so it's an acrostic. We don't see much of acrostics anymore, but they're, they're, they're fun to read. Remember when you were kids, you know, A stood for something and B stood for something and C stood for something. But anyway, so David, as, as he is contemplating his deliverance from Achish, from Abimelech, he realizes that even though he came up with this crazy, stupid plan of acting like an idiot, and that got him out of there, it was really God who got him out of there. And so now he sits down and, and writes this acrostic, and, and each stanza is, is giving thanksgiving and praise to God for his ability to deliver his servants out of trouble. Now that's the historical background. So that's, that's, that's the setting for this. David doesn't even mention any of this in Psalm 34, but everybody's convinced that that's what it's about. So we'll go with the historical thing. Am I all set over there? Yeah. Oh, good. Praise the Lord. Last time I did this, I forgot to turn the thing on, and then somebody turned it on, and I forgot to turn it off. And, you know. And I'm supposed to give a title to the, to, the, to the lesson, and so my title today, of course, is Taste and See That the Lord is Good. That's the title the ESV gives, so I like it. And uh, so does Peter, as a matter of fact. He mentions it. All right, beginning at verse 1, then, I'm going to give a running commentary. It's not going to be super deep, but, but uh, hopefully it'll be helpful. And, and we'll, we'll see what the psalm says, and then we'll see what I think is his intention in, in, in writing the psalm. You'll probably figure it out before we get there. But anyway, let's begin. Verse 1 says, I will bless the Lord. I use an ESV translation. Born and raised on the King James, but I like my ESV. When I quote scripture, it's always King James. Because, you know, uh, but uh, I like my ESV because it's comfortable. If you're not comfortable with it, just hang in there. Use your own translation. <laughs> All right, anybody got an ESV here? Oh, there, look at there. See, I'm not a total heretic. <laughs> All right, verse 1. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. And instantly we're acquainted with the style of writing of, of, of David and a lot of the, the New Te Old Testament poets, and that is, is parallelism. He gives one phrase and then repeats the same idea in, in the next phrase in the verse. And, and the idea is that he says, I, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall be continually in my mouth. Now, we know we can't bless God, really. What can you add to what God has? If you use the word bless as, as, as happy, but that's not the word here, uh, we can make God happy. We can bless God. You know, we can make him happy by obeying him and doing the things that are pleasing to him, right? But uh, this is a different word altogether. Than, the word for happy comes down later on in, in, in the chapter. Uh, but, but this one is, is the word that, that actually means uh, to, to praise, to give glory to. Uh, so uh, David says, I, I'm going to, to give praise and glory to the Lord Yahweh at all times because I just can't get over how he delivered me. And, and I, I just got to let him know how, how grateful I am uh, that he did. 
and his praise shall be continually in my mouth. And then verse 2 says, my, my soul makes its boast in the Lord. So it's obvious that, that David recognized that, that even though he came up with the scheme of madness to get away from Abimelech, it was God who delivered him. And so he's not going to take any of the credit for his stupidity, but he's going to take credit for God and give the praise and, and glory to God. God is the one who delivers us. Now, we know that's true. He tells us elsewhere in, in, in the Psalms that, that we make our own plans, right? But it's God who gives success to those, those plans. You know, we... we we, you say, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And God says, yeah, well, if I let you, you're going to do this and you're going to do that. So, uh, and, and so when we do make plans, we need to remember that, that God is the one that's actually in control. And we need to make plans saying, God being my helper, this is what I'm going to do. Okay. And even if we don't use the words God being my help, we just acknowledge the fact that, that, that uh, I'm planning to go to Tacoma tomorrow, uh, God willing, and the church doesn't rise. Uh, and, and, uh, and we know that God's going to go with me and protect me. So uh, I, I, I uh, uh, yeah, and then he says, let the humble hear and be glad. Now, it took David humbling himself to put confidence in God to deliver him from Abimelech. It took David humbling himself to actually admit that, God, I need your help. And, of course, we know all throughout the Bible that humility is, 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 is what God wants from us. You know, uh, and every time we start taking credit for what we do, and we move, transfer from trusting the spirit to trusting the flesh. It doesn't end well, does it? And uh, so it's better off if we just start trusting him to begin with. Anyway, so uh, the humble uh, will hear and be glad. And then verse 3 says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me. And let us exalt his name together. Now, that's a call for corporate worship. Now, I don't know what your Bible says for, oh, magnify the Lord. Anybody got a different translation? What's yours say? When says glorify, that I mean. Glorify, yeah. Anybody got that from one? Yeah. NIV, make God great. Uh, but anyway, I, I like that the ESV chose magnify. And, you know, I, I like to dig into the Hebrew meaning of magnify, and the Hebrew meaning of magnify means to make great, to make God's name great, big. And that's what magnify portrays. That's where I use this, so I can make my letters even bigger and be able to read it. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. So what David is saying here, calling us to corporate worship, is to join him in together in what I like to say is make God look big. Make God look good in front of your brothers and sisters in Christ and in front of the whole world. Live your life in such a way that, that, that you make God look good, that you make God look great. Now, where I used to go to church, we had a little ditty that, that we sang along those lines that uh, these people over here know. I don't know if you ever heard it. It says, be big to me, my king, and let me be small. Let 
me be nothing at all. And you be everything. Why aren't you singing with me? Everything to me. You be everything. Yeah, you all know that, right? No, you don't. <laughs> but we like it. You like it? Yeah. Oh, like, want me to sing it again? <laughs> be big to me, my king, and let me be small. Let me be nothing at all. And you be everything, everything to me. You be everything. See, that's what happened when you go to an independent Baptist Bible-believing church. <laughs> you learn ditties like that, which, which are good. But anyway, David is calling his readers to corporate worship. And, oh, magnify the Lord with me. Make the Lord look great. And, and, and that's what we're supposed to be doing. You know, uh, you ever heard of that guy named John, John Bunyan? The guy who wrote Pilgrim's Progress and the Holy Wars. Great, great analogy or allegory or whatever. Anyway, he, he testifies that he was converted uh, partly because one day he was walking through his hometown being the cursing, reviling sinner that he was, and he heard this group of women magnifying the Lord, talking about how great and wonderful God was. And, 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 and it caught his attention. And the next thing you know, uh, he, God got a hold of him and he began the whole lifetime of making God look big. And uh, so when you gather together, you know, when we gather together as friends, we talk about everything, right? We talk about politics, you know, we talk about COVID. I'm so tired of people talking about COVID. You know, I said, tell me about your Jesus. There's a song out now about that, you know. And, and the thing is that that, uh, uh, that encourages one another. And if unbelievers hear, it'll, it'll, it'll get to them too. So he says, oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. And here's part of the reason, the first statement of, of, of why he wrote the psalm. He said, you know, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all of my fears. Isn't that great? I sought the Lord. David was afraid he was going to lose his life. So he sought the Lord and the Lord delivered him from the fear of death by delivering him from Abimelech. You ever been in a situation where you thought you might die and, and you, you knew nothing you could do but, but trust the Lord, you know? And, and it looks like he came through. <laughs> you're, you're still here, right? <laughs> yeah, so uh, I sought the Lord and he answered me and, uh, and delivered me from all my fears. And then he says, well, there may have been one or two people with him during this account. He said, those who, who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. Now, that's quite a claim. And what he's saying here is if you'll learn to trust the Lord, he'll take care of you. He'll deliver you from your troubles and, 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 and your face will shine as a result of it. You know, what's that smile doing on your face? Because I got a great and wonderful God, you know. And uh, 
Anyway, uh, verse 6. This is my favorite verse. And this is another explanation of why he's writing the psalm. He says, this poor man cried. Now, it doesn't mean he's poverty-stricken. He means that, 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 that he's, he's humble. Uh, and, and he realizes that he really has no right to make any claims on God or definitely no demands on God. Uh, so the only, the only right he has is to call out and ask God to be merciful to him and to be gracious. And so as a poor, humble man, he said, I, I did that. I cried uh, unto the Lord. I cried, and the Lord, this poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. Now, of course, if, if, if this was indeed, as the title says, written to celebrate uh, what he had done, uh, the troubles he was talking about was what God had just delivered him from. And, uh, but then as his history goes on, <clears throat> he testifies over and over again that, that, that as long as he lived a life true to God, God took care of him. And that, that was the habit right up until that disastrous time, remember, when he messed up with Bathsheba? And from then on, it was just downhill, you know. The Lord continued the blessing, but the Lord also inflicted him with a whole bunch of consequences, family-wise, government-wise, you know, nation-wise. And, uh, but up until that time, he, he, he practiced trusting the Lord, and, and the Lord continued to deliver him. Uh, and saved him out of, out, of, out of all of his troubles. You're probably already, I hope, getting the theme of the psalm. Okay, so verse 7 says, <clears throat> The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Now, usually the reference to the angel of the Lord is what theologians like to say, a pre-incarnation appearance of Christ, uh, the Son of God. And, uh, but what David tells us here is, is that the angel of the Lord, that, in other words, God himself, encamps around those who, who fear him, those who honor him, those who hold him in awe, those who respect him as, as, as God, uh, you know, and don't, don't treat, him, treat him just lightly. And, and he encamps around those uh, and, and delivers them. Reminds me of that story of Elisha, you know, and, and uh, uh, you can look it up in your own Bibles. And when he and his servant, uh, all, all these, these, the enemy was all around them, and the servant was freaking out, and Elijah said, don't worry, there's a whole lot more on our side than on theirs, and opened his eyes, and he saw the armies of God surrounding the, these crazy people. Uh, and... and uh, the, the thing, the, the point of the thing is, is that, that when we go through trouble, we don't do it alone. God is actually with us. We just got to remember that. And we forget, don't we? We say, oh, oh man, now what am I going to do? I, I got I to gotta figure out some way to, to solve this problem. And, 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 and usually we do like David. We, we, we turn to, to, to a human source for our protection and for our deliverance. And of course, you know where that leads. And, and we soon discover that, that uh, these guys might be really gifted, 
and they might be able to help us out, but they don't have the answer, you know. So we have to realize that, that God is our true helper. Now, God wants us to take advantage of help. When we run into trouble, he doesn't want us to just fold our arms and say, cool, now you've got an opportunity to figure out a way to get me out of this, you know. God will say, well, you know, starve. You know, if, if there are human help that's legitimate, God does want us to take advantage of it. So if, you know, if you need money and you got a friend who's willing to give you the money, well, then you're supposed to say, thank you, God. You just provide it for me. But we don't just, just sit there and, and, you know, wait for God. You know, you know like, like you sit at your dinner, dining room table and you pray for God to feed you, and you pray for God to feed you, you'll starve to death. God says, isn't that a refrigerator behind you? Get up and get what's in there. <laughs> so he does expect us, you know, to make some effort to, to, to use the means that he's placed in front of us. But at the same time, he wants us to realize that, that he's the real source of our deliverance. And we just need to, to trust him. And, and he'll show us who to borrow money from or who to ask counsel from. Uh, and he'll, he'll direct us. So, uh, <clears throat> so the Lord encamps around uh, those that fear him and delivers them. So when you face trouble, just remember that you don't do it alone. Now verse 8, the title of the psalm, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who makes, takes refuge in him. Now there's the word for happy. There, that blessed means happy. Uh, so ha happy is the man uh, who, who, who takes refuge in, in God. Uh, and, uh, <clears throat> but here's an invitation to taste and see that the Lord is good. And of course, you know, that's figurative language, metaphorical language. You know, the Lord doesn't want us to, you know, take him by the hand and lick him and see what he tastes like. Uh, it's an invitation to trust God for yourself. You know, it's like when you go to a restaurant and you introduce a friend to something new and, and, and they're a little bit sketchy about trying it. You just, just taste it and see. You'll see that it's good. And hopefully they taste it and they say, oh, wow, this really is good. I guess you know what you're talking about. And that's the invitation here is, is to just trust God for yourself. And you'll see that he's everything that he claims to be. And he'll do for you just what he says he will do. I continually try to, try to encourage people that, to, to put that into practice in, 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 in even small areas of your life. Trust the Lord to get you out of bed in the morning. Trust the Lord to, to help you decide uh, what, what's, what's the meal, best meal plan. Uh, trust the Lord to, to uh, help you uh, and equip you to be able to behave yourself at work and at school and to treat your wife nice. That's always a good idea, you know, and uh, happy wife, happy life. You ever heard that? I know how that goes. But anyway, uh, but the invitation here is to try God for yourself. And when you talk to the unsaved, you know, and he says, I, I just, I just, you know, God can't forgive a sinner like me. You just said, well, try him out. 
trust him. Just, just see. You know, and old Spurgeon used to talk about people worried about elections. Oh, I don't know if I'm going to, if I'm going to heaven or not. And he said, well, there's one way to find out. Trust God as your Lord and Savior. You do that, he'll save you. You're on your way to heaven. So forget about that crazy doctrinal word that people like to worry about. You know, taste and see that the Lord is good. And happier those that take refuge in him. You trust in God. You let him be the boss. You, 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 you trust him to, to take care of you. And, and you'll be happy. You want to be happy? You know, everybody wants to be happy. Well, happiness is wonderful, but it's not the end all. The end all is to know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior and to trust him. And you'll learn what happiness is all about. Uh, but anyway, oh, taste and see that, that the Lord is good and happy is the man who takes refuge in him. Then he says, oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. Now that means sacred ones. You're a sacred one to God, you know. In the New Testament, the idea of being a saint is one who has been set apart by God for his purposes. And so, believe it or not, uh, you, you, you are uh, St. Blake. I'm St. Michael. Well, you all knew that, right? <laughs> but uh, we're saints. We're set-apart ones. We're sacred to God. We're special to God. And we need to live that way. You know, the world may not like you, but the one who counts does. God likes us, you know. Yeah, and I'm trying. But <laughs> well, anyway, uh, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good and happy is the man who takes refuge in him. You see, I'm not giving you any deep theological discussion here. I, I, I took theology and all that crazy stuff, you know, but... Uh, I just want to know how to know the Lord and enjoy the Lord. My catechism said, you know, what's the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And that's my goal. Oh, fear the Lord, you are saints, for those who fear him have no lack. Now, talk about a claim. When you read that, if you fear God, you'll have no lack. Immediately, you want to say, hold on a minute. I know what it's like to lack. And that's because we all know what we would like, but we're learning that what we like may not be good for us. That's true. And what is good for us, God makes sure that we have. So we, we don't lack anything we need. Everything we need for life and godliness, he provides. And my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory, according to Christ Jesus. So that, that's quite a claim. And at first you say, wow, I don't, I don't know if I can believe that. But after you start thinking about it, you realize that, that uh, I, what I really need to survive, God provides. Now, I'd like uh, uh, Alexis to go along with it. And, uh, you know, uh, a nice four-bedroom house. But God says, you don't need that. Be content with your three-bedroom, double-wide mobile home. 
And I have been for the last 30 years, and I think the house will fall apart along with me. But anyway, uh, so fear the Lord, uh, you as saints, for those who fear him have no lack. And then he goes on to say, you know, the young lions, uh, uh, they, they, they suffer wanton hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. So, you know, all good things come from God. And, and uh, so all the good in your life has come from God. And, and, and God's going to supply everything that you need. And the thing is, is trusting. Now, that is so hard to do, especially when you're younger, you know. And I, I'm, not, I'm not a chauvinist, but I find that my wife, at least, has a hard time believing that God gave her a reliable husband. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and uh, so she, 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 she needs to learn how to trust God that, you know, well, after 53 years, she knows that I'm dependable anyway. I haven't left her, so anyway, she's still learning, though. I just tell her when I get upset, duck and count to 10 and we'll be okay. <laughs> anyway, David goes on to say, oh, come Children, come, O oh children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Now, children here just <coughs> refers to young people. And, uh, and of course, David had a lot, a lot of young people in his life. And, and, uh, but we're also considered children, too. So we, we fit into, in, into the picture. But the original idea is that, is that of younger people. And they're the ones that need to learn. But unfortunately, it takes us a lifetime to learn, doesn't it? You know, uh, because one thing about young people is, 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 is they know it all, and they're capable of anything. And you don't believe them, ask them. Uh, you know, I was telling my grandson the other day, <coughs> remember old Mark Twain? I've used this so many times, you know, that's because I'm old and senile. But Mark Twain, when he was 18, he, he said, you know, when I was 18, I thought my parents were really dumb. And then when I was 21, I realized, man, they've learned a lot in three years. And it takes time to grow up, it takes time to mature, it takes time to learn. And as young people, we don't know what we don't know. All we know is what we think we know. And uh, that usually... Well, you've all experienced that, so you know what it's like. Anyway, uh, so here, let me, let me teach you what, what the fear of the Lord is. And then he gives his explanation. He says, what man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Okay, what man is there that doesn't desire life and many days that he may see good? And all of us want to know, okay, what's the secret? What's the key? What can we do to, to, to promote that idea? And David goes on to say, well, here's my advice. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking guile. Now, Peter, when he talks to the dispersed saints in, in 1 Peter, uh, gives them the same counsel, the same advice. They're being persecuted for doing good. And he says, look, just keep doing good. Let God take care of, you know. The outcome. Uh, and if you're persecuted for doing good, well then praise God. And if you're persecuted for being a Christian, he says, get even more excited. Because now you're fulfilling just what Jesus Christ said would happen to you. And now you know you're his. Because they don't like you. 
because you're his. And so uh, this is a very popular uh, quotation in the New Testament as well. And, and David says, <clears throat> his first piece of advice is, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking guile. <clears throat> or that was King James, it's deceit in, in my Bible. Uh, but, but keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking guile. Learn how to be honest with everybody. How to be honest with yourself. How to be honest with God. How to be honest with your spouse. God hates deceit because God is a God of truth and he wants us to be people of truth and deceit and lying lips are an abomination to God. They destroy homes. They destroy marriages. They destroy relationships. They, 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 they destroy lives. And God says, if you want to learn how to be happy and have a long life, start by learning to be honest and truthful. Now, you may indeed practice being honest and truthful and die when you're 25. But at least up until God called you home, you were doing what he wanted you to do. Now, we know how easy it is to slip into deceit, right? Especially when we've done what we know we're not supposed to do. And we're about to get called into question on it. And honesty is still the best policy. I used to drive a school bus, you know, in New Hampshire, and, and I did something stupid one day. And the boss came and asked me about it. And I said, well, I could be like the stupid kid that I dealt with and lie about it. But he already knows. So I just said, yeah, I did the wrong thing. I'm sorry. Can you forgive me? And he said, well, okay, this time. Just don't let it happen again. Happened to be the principal son, so. <laughs> anyway, uh, we used to teach the kids in the Christian school, you know, the, the saying that, that the world says honesty is the best policy. Well, God says honesty is the only policy. Now you want to start a fight? Maintain that claim. Oh, but, 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 but. Well, it's awful hard in some situations to actually tell the truth. Sometimes you have to be like uh, Corey Ten Boone's sister or cousin and just say, well, if I tell the truth, my brothers are dead, but I can't lie. So I'll just say, well, they're under the table. And the soldiers looked under the table, of course, and there was nothing there. She told the truth. They were under the table, under the floor, under the table. <laughs> and so they left them alone and her brothers were preserved. She told the truth, but she did it in a way that still protected her, her loved ones. And we have to pray for wisdom in certain circumstances, you know, to be able to still tell the truth and still protect God's people and, and to protect ourselves. So each situation has its own scenario. But honesty is still the best policy. And if you learn to just practice being honest, life will be a whole lot better for you. And keep your lips from, from speaking guile. And then he says, turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Now, we all have a conscience, right? And when we do wrong, we know it. It bothers us. Sometimes we try to harden our... Yes? Can I ask a question about honesty? You can ask a question if you speak up real loud. Oh, okay. <laughs> Just about deceit, right? Because... I guess this Psalm 34 he wrote right after he was spared 
I guess the situation was he had to act like a mad, insane man. Yeah. To otherwise he would have been pursued violently, right? Yeah. So that that was an effective strategy, right? So do you think that that was deceitful in nature? Because he's not, he wasn't really insane. Kind of like in the court of law now, you know, people will plead insanity to get yeah. lesser charges. Yeah. And it's our job to prove that, that they're not. Yeah. yeah. Well, he was lying. Yeah. There's no two ways about it, you know. And and, and uh, David. Yeah. And he knew that he, he had done wrong. Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. But to him, it was expedient for him. Mm-hmm. He thought to lie mm-hmm. to get out of trouble. And in this case, you know, it worked, uh, but he, there were consequences. Yeah, so, uh, you know, we're, we're supposed to tell the truth if at all possible, but we don't always do that. I lie. Can you believe that? We all lie, you know. I lie about who knows what, but for the same reason, makes me look good. I don't want people to think bad of me. So I'm, I just tell them I'm... Well, I learned to be quiet. When you be quiet, they think you're smart. <laughs> so but yeah, no, David was lying. No two ways about it. And, and uh, he suffered the, the consequences of it. Uh, but it was expedient, and it worked. And sometimes when you tell a lie, it works temporarily. And, and you actually get away with it for a little while. Thank you. But the chickens come home to roost, don't they? Yes. They, 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 it catches up with you after a while. But then David goes on to say, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. So when you, when you try to live a life that, that's pleasing to the Lord, you have this confidence that, that uh, you're not alone and God sees what's going on. He knows. You know, He's an all-seeing God. All things are open and naked before whom we have to do, you know. So one thing I learned about that is, you know, why to be honest with God? <laughs> he knows everything that you thought and everything that you did, you know, anyway. So you can't fool him. So you just might as well be honest, you know, and take your licks. How many times have you thought when you, when you were honest with God that he'd take you to the woodshed and instead he loved you? and forgave you, blessed you anyway. And you said, oh, how good you are. Taste and see, the Lord is good. <laughs> but uh, his eyes are always open to, to your need. Uh, he's never unaware of your need. He cares about everything that you care about. And uh, his, his, his uh, ears are, are t- towards your cry. Then it says that the face of the Lord is against those who do evil, though, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. So the Lord pays attention to the liar. He pays attention to the evil guy as well. And the one consolation we have is is, is that that, uh, he takes care of them, too. Sometimes we wish he would do it our way and a whole lot quicker. Uh, But he takes care of them anyway. Uh, his way and of course his way is always the best you know he might send them directly to hell or he might convert them and then we have to love them 
go to church with them. Oh, those wonderful things. <laughs> oh, well, what a God we serve. Yeah. And uh, verse 17, when, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears them and delivers them out of most of their trials. Oh, all of their troubles. Lord, just help me remember that and believe that all my troubles. For the Lord is near the brokenhearted and saves the crust in spirit. Ever had a broken heart? Wow. Yeah. I had my heart broken, you know. But they get broken for all kinds of reasons. You know, my first heartbreak was this, this girl that, that, you know, she broke up with me. And I just said, well, Lord, if you'll give her back, I'll serve you forever. <laughs> and he gave her back for two months. And she was gone. And now I've been serving him forever. <laughs> so I had, to keep, I had to keep my end of the bargain, I guess. But uh, it, it was safer. But we get broken hearts over lost loved ones. Disappointments, the loss of a job, loss of a close friend. But, but, but David says that, that God is, has a special place for brokenhearted people. He takes special notice of the brokenhearted and those who have a, have a contrite, pliable, contritious heart. David talks about that again, you know, when God forgave him in, in, with Bathsheba. And, and he said, uh, uh, the Lord had, had mercy on me and uh, healed my broken heart. That's just a loose paraphrase. Psalm 51, you can look it up for yourself. And uh, it's great when you get old. You remember what the Bible says. You just can't remember where it says it. <laughs> it's in there somewhere. Look it up. you got a good concordance. But anyway, Psalm 51, like about down here at my level right there. Uh, anyway, so uh, the Lord has a special place for, for the brokenhearted. So he has a special place when, when, when you go through even the, the difficulty of a broken heart. And we all know they're no fun. They're miserable days. But they pass. And then we go through the healing process. And eventually we still hurt, but we're getting better. You know, it's a good thing I didn't get my first choice of a wife. I wouldn't have the one I have. I wouldn't have the kids I have. I wouldn't have the grandkids I have. You know, God knew what he was doing. Amen. You know, what's old Garth Brooks saying? Sometimes the best answer is an unanswered prayer or something like that. I don't know. I heard that once upon a time, then that's all I can remember of the song. You know who Garth Brooks is? I don't know. He's not a Christian singer, I don't think, but... He sings like we want to act, you know. That guy cheated on his wife, and the thunder rolled, <laughs> and she taught him a lesson, whatever. All right, verse 19, I'm almost done. May, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Now, here's another fantastic claim. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Can you say amen to that? Yes. You know, I mean, how many afflictions have you had in your life? How many troubles and trials have you had in your life? Can you count them on one hand, or is it going to take a whole ledger? You know, many are the afflictions of the righteous. We get them all the time, all the day, in every size, shape, and form. And David says, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but guess what? 
The Lord delivers him out of the ones he chooses. Know that the Lord delivers him out of them all. Can you testify to that? Amen. You're still here, right? You know, that, that's exciting. Yeah. The more I think about the goodness of God, the more excited I get. I might turn Pentecostal on you, so forgive me. I'll have to get BJ in here and hold my hand, you know. I love when that guy leads worship. You know, he gets you so lifted up. And boy, his songs went right along with what I'm talking about today. So I said, oh, thank you, BJ. I know I must be on the right track. Anyway, uh, but he keeps all his bones and not one of them is broken. Now there's another crazy claim. How many have had broken bones? Yeah, I had a broken finger. That's the only one I got. Kept running into the same guy in a roller rink. <laughs> Broke my finger. But anyway, he's not talking about your physical bones. He's talking about your, your whole physical countenance. He, he, he preserves your life and keeps it from being destroyed, you know. And, and uh, he preserves our lives is what he does. <clears throat> and uh, we're still alive today by the grace and mercy of God. And he continues to preserve us and, and, and to care for us. And uh, then he goes on to say, affliction will slay the wicked. And those who hate the righteous will be condemned. You know, touch not God's anointed. Keep your hands off God's people. You can do what you want and you think you're accomplishing your purposes. Jesus said they're going to hate us because they hated him. And, and so, you know, they do everything they can to destroy Christianity and destroy us. And God says, well, your day's coming. You know, go ahead. I'll let you do what I want you to do. And when you're done, I'm going to take care of you. So you better repent or you're going to perish. And that's what, that was the cry of 911. And that's the cry of, of the corona pandemic. The Lord is telling the unsaved, you better repent or you're going to perish. I've sent this affliction to you. I've sent this plague. I've sent a lot of plagues over the years. Some have repented, others haven't. The ones who haven't perished. And the message is the same to you. You need to repent or you'll not only get coronavirus, you'll get the hell virus. You'll perish. So wake up. That's what he's saying to the world. And he's saying, Christian, wake up. You need to be the witness that you're supposed to be. You know, you're supposed to have been telling these people this all this time and you've been silent and now it's time for you to get up and get moving. You know, I didn't save you to sit and sit. I saved you to get up and get. So get going. You know, hometown. You ever watch that show? Just get up and do it. You know. <laughs> Excuse me for my illustrations. I, I don't get out much. Okay, so uh, affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. But the Lord redeems the life of his servants and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Well, we have that promise again in the New Testament, don't we? There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. Remember Romans 12.1? Uh, no, Romans 8.1, I'm sorry. See, I'm getting old. But anyway, now, what do I think is the intention of David? Well, you probably already figured it out. He wants us to know what happened to him and what he did and how God answered. And he's saying to us, if you'll do the same, he'll do the same for you. Now, that, I think, is it in a nutshell. If you'll learn to trust God, you'll learn that he's trustworthy you'll learn that he can be actually counted on. 
And it's a great thing with, with, with your children, you know, when, when you're teaching them. You know, uh, well, well, Susie, my daughter did this once. Just, she came to me one day when she was about 15, when we were still in Nova Scotia, and, and she says, Daddy, could I get a new dress? And I said, well, well honey, you know, we, we, don't, we don't really have the money for a new dress right now, but if we pray about it, we'll see what God does. So we prayed about it. And that day after I got done preaching, this dear old lady who was one of the ladies who cared for the, house, the church, the custodian, came up and gave me an envelope for 20 bucks. And I thanked her and I said, well, I went home and said, here, daughter, can you get a dress for 20 bucks? And she said, yeah. And the amazing thing is, when she's 45 years old, sitting in my Sunday school class, she testifies. She said, you know, the first time that I really knew that the Lord answered prayer was over that dress. That's what it's all about, folks. Teach your children young and teach yourself. Taste and see that the Lord's good. He is dependable. He will come through. Maybe not the way you hoped he would, but he will come through. Is it time to quit? Oh, good. <laughs> well, let's pray, and we'll let you go. Thanks you for your patience. Our great God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we, we love you. And we've tested you, and we've seen your faithfulness, and we know what you can do. Help us, Lord, to remember it and to continue to trust you. Because, Lord, there's, there, there, there's a whole lot of afflictions coming our way. And we're going to need your help. So convince us, Lord, that you are more than able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ever ask and think. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.